Oh, to love him more. May he give us a deeper, greater love for the Savior. Let's turn to the Old Testament book of Psalms once again. Psalm chapter 126. It's the passage we read at the very beginning of the meeting. Psalm 126. And we read this together this morning before we labored, before we were working on the field. Just a few of us there. A bit of time, time of prayer and reading of the word and and read through five chapters of Psalms and came to this one and, and just sensed the Lord would direct us here this evening. Psalm 126, beautiful psalm. They, they reckon this is number seven in the psalm of de- song of degrees. It's a psalm of ascent. It's when they ascended up to the temple, the Jewish people were making their way to the temple. And they would sing these songs together, one at a time, in a particular order. And they say this is number seven. I'm not sure uh, whether or not that's valid, but that's what I've been told. Psalm 126, it is without a doubt a song of degrees, one to be read on the way, the procession to the temple. It's a psalm that is beautiful, a psalm that deals with what God has done, a plea for what God will do, and an instruction as to what we should do. And we'll look at those three things this evening. Psalm 126, and let's think for just a moment. The first three verses really deal with this thought, the Lord hath done great things for us. Would you look here for a moment? How many of you know that you have been born again? Would you raise your hand? You know it. Then you can say, the Lord hath done great things for us. You can say, God has been good. And it doesn't matter what you're going through, God has been good. The Lord has done great things for us. And if the only thing he ever did for you was save your soul, that would be enough. That would be enough. Look at the three, first three verses. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Now, this imagine the nation of Israel singing this. They were being put in remembrance of the day that God delivered them from the Babylonian captivity. And the captivity beneath the Babylonians was a terrible, cruel captivity. And they're writing in such a way, singing in such a way as to say, when the Lord turned again the captivity, when he brought the captives back to Zion, we were like them that dream. It was was unbelievable. We thought we'd never get out of that slavery. Now, some of you, if you've been born again by the shed blood of Jesus and by his Holy Spirit, some of you may remember the time when you thought you would never, ever be saved. You may remember the restless nights of fighting and wrestling with God and seeking the Lord and thinking that you'd never get out of this, this unending cycle of sin. You were a slave to darkness and you couldn't, couldn't imagine getting out of it. You wanted to, but didn't know how. That's the way these people were. And then God turned their captivity in an instant. It was done in such a miraculous way that nobody could doubt that God did it. 
By the way, that's exactly what salvation is like. True salvation, conversion, is all it may all it may come in different ways, it may happen at different times, and, and the Lord may reveal himself to us in different ways altogether, but true conversion always leaves the same result. It leaves man understanding that he could have never done this himself. We were like them that dream. It's a couple of times in the New Testament when this is sort of um, illustrated for us. The book of Luke chapter 24. I couldn't help but think about this today when, when thinking of this little thought. We were like them that dream. Luke 24 and verse number 41. You may remember this account when the two men were walking on the road to Emmaus. And the Lord Jesus appeared to them and revealed himself to them. It was quite a remarkable time. And then the Lord appeared to them all, stood in the midst of them in verse 26. And he said, peace be unto them. But they were terrified and affrighted. They supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, why are you troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and feet. It is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye any meat? So here are the disciples seeing Jesus with their eyes. First time for many of them after Christ's resurrection. And they think it's a ghost. He says, a ghost doesn't have a body. Look at my hands and my feet. Touch me. And the Bible says they couldn't believe it. That's literally, they believed not for joy. It wasn't that they were unbelieving. They were other times, but this particular time wasn't that they were unbelieving. It was they were so happy they couldn't believe it. It's like if today I walked up with a million pounds and said, here you go. You'd look at me and say, I don't believe. You must be joking. You couldn't believe it. Although the evidence is there. And that's exactly the way they were thinking. Here he is. And that's the way that the nation of Israel were thinking when they were set free. And if you've ever been set free from your sin, if you've ever been set free from bondage, if you've ever been delivered, you know what it is to be like them that dream. Is this real? Do I really belong to God? Am I really his child? That's exactly what they were feeling. It's the same kind of thing thought of in, in Acts chapter 12. I love this story. You remember this in Acts 12. One of our dear apostles were, was arrested. He spent some time in prison in Acts chapter 12 and verse number 9. Uh, the scriptures say verse number 8. And angels, the angel said to him, if you remember, Peter was in prison and the angel came and woke him up in the night and said, come on with me. And the Bible says, the angel said to him, gird thyself, bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, cast thy garment about thee and follow me. And he went out and followed him and wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought that he saw a vision. I must be dreaming. I mean, this looks like an angel and I'm walking out of prison. This is not reality. I, I must be dreaming. And that's the way these people, the, the Jews, the Israelites felt when they were delivered. We must be dreaming. Is this real? Somebody pinch me. We've been set free. By the way, if you've never been born again, then you don't, you don't know what this is like. In the same chapter, Peter shows up in, in Acts chapter 12 and, and verse number 14, he shows up at the house. Uh, look at verse number 
and 13, Peter knocked at the door of the gate and a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. We've got Rhoda with us tonight. And Rhoda came to the door and the Bible says this in verse 14, when she knew Peter's voice, she opened, look what it says, opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. Can you imagine? Here she is and, and Peter knocks at the, the door. Here comes this little girl, Rhoda. She's responsible for watching out in case any enemies come in. And there she goes and there's Peter. She's so overwhelmed and excited that she leaves a man outside. And so full of joy that she runs back and says, this Peter. And they say, well, where is he? Oh, pardon me, he's still outside. That's that kind of, that kind of joy, unspeakable. That kind of dreaminess that I've been saved. I've been delivered. And this is the song that they're singing. Can you imagine the nation of Israel like a mighty army marching to the temple to worship and praise God? Can you imagine this psalm was written and it was intended? Uh, one, one of the commentators this afternoon, I think it was Calvin, said that this psalm was written that extravagant praise ought to be offered to God. Can you imagine? It was written in such a way that extravagant praise, that it would, it would stir within us such praise that's not like, boy, I'm, I'm glad I'm saved, aren't you? No, no, no. The kind of praise that you, 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 people want you to stuff a sock in it. That kind of praise. The kind of praise that bubbles out of you and, and people really get annoyed and after about five minutes they're ready for you to leave because you just can't stop talking about how wonderful it is to be a Christian. That's the kind of praise this is meant to incite inside of God's children. We were like them that dream. When then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue filled with singing. And then said they among the heathen. Watch this. Then said they among the heathen, the unconverted, the Chaldeans. Then said they even the Babylonians. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. Can you imagine such a work being done by God in your life that people who don't even believe, people who don't even believe in your God say, well, I don't know what happened, but something happened and it looks like, I don't really believe in God, but it looks like God did something there. That's what happened. This is for a nation. You gotta, this is a national thing. And you can, you can apply the same truth to the church of the living God today that we need that kind of a movement again. That the whole world says, I don't really believe in God, but something's happening there. It's interesting to me. We live in a world today that people, they will do anything just so they don't attribute goodness to God. They'd rather attribute it to aliens. They really would. They would rather attribute the creation and the, and the modernization of the world. They'd rather attribute that to aliens than to believe that God did it. It's madness, isn't it? They'd rather, they'd rather believe that we came, this whole world came from aliens. We were populated and this world was, was further developed because of the influence of eight. They'd rather believe that than God. Isn't it mad? But the Bible says at this time, even these people who had so many false gods and different views, even they couldn't help but say, God's been good to them. Their God has been good to them. Nobody could deny it. It's kind of the same thing that happened when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. You remember that? Kind of the same thing then. They were expected, well, they, uh, how, how impossible was it for them to be alive when the men who threw them into the furnace were burned up? Just by taking them to the entrance, the mouth of the furnace, those men were burned up. And not only did the three men live, but they looked inside the furnace and there was another man with them. 
And the king said, hold on a moment. I thought we put three fellas in there. Uh, am I seeing things? Because I see four. And the fourth one looks like the son of God. Amazing, isn't it? Bring him out. Here they come. Everybody knew their God delivered them. What about Daniel thrown into the lion's den? In the morning, Daniel, are you there? I'm doing well. Me and, me and these furry little kitties have had a good night's rest. They pulled him out and the, and the king said, look, kill those men who tried to get you killed. And everybody must worship your God because your God is so evidently right and true. Because of what he's done. And that's exactly what took place here. That God moved and delivered the nation of Israel in such an obvious way that even the heathen, the unconverted said, look what their God has done. Wouldn't it be amazing to see something like that today? The heathen said it. Now, now let, me, let me challenge you for a second. Because if the heathen can say it, how much more should the people of God say it? If the heathen could say the Lord hath done great things for them, then the natural response, verse 3, is that the Lord hath done great things for us. Amen. We must say it. Yeah. We must believe it. And just because, baby, you haven't seen what you want to see yet, if you've been born again, he's done great things for you. Right. Preach it from the rooftops. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Are you glad? I hope you are. I hope you're glad. Now, that's the first part of the psalm. The Lord has done great things for us. The second part of the psalm is a request. Look at it. Turn again our captivity. O Lord, as the streams in the south, turn again our captivity. Now, most agree that what the psalmist is saying is not God did it once, he needs to do it again. It's not what he's saying. But rather, what he is saying is that God delivered all of Israel, but only a remnant went back to Jerusalem. And so there's a whole lot more. They've already been delivered, but they need to be brought out. And maybe they haven't come out because they're afraid. They've got, maybe they haven't come out because they've gotten so comfortable in Babylon. Maybe they haven't come out because they don't want to come out. But a whole lot more need to come out and they haven't come out. And so the psalmist says, turn again our captivity or our captive brothers. So we've made it out. And can I just say for a moment, if you have been saved by the grace of God, you and I are the most selfish human beings on the planet if we do not want others to be saved. There's something wrong with you if you can take the salvation of God, say, thank you for saving my soul, washing me of my sins, and just watch other people wander through life without Christ and die knowing that without Christ they're going to spend eternity in hell. Something wrong. Something wrong. And so naturally, what the psalmist, what God is saying, what God is saying is that if you've been delivered, it ought to burn in your heart to see others delivered. It ought to bubble up inside of you, the, a burden to see others delivered for whom Christ died. Now, there are so many verses. I was thinking about this just this, this afternoon. There's two parts of this verse. I don't want to forget the second part, but this first part, turn again our captivity, O Lord. Uh, uh, turn again our captive brothers, O Lord. There are more. I can't help but think of one of my favorite parables in Luke chapter 14 is that, that great wedding feast. 
I've preached on it so many times when it comes to evangelistic meetings and and they were sent out, if you remember, the servant was sent out to invite people, tell them that the supper was ready. Come now for all things are now ready. And they began to make excuses. Do you remember? And the master of the house was very angry because he invited people and they didn't want to come. So he said, go into the streets and lanes of the city and compel them to come in. Amen. Now, when he did that, the servant came back and said, master, I've done it. It is done as thou hast commanded. And yet there is room. Can I tell you something? If you're still alive, there's still room. If we're still here and we're not dancing a jig in heaven, there's still room. There's still room. There's still more souls to be saved. There's still more people who need to be rescued. There's still more people in captivity that need to be set free. So get on your horse and ride it. John Wesley rode 250,000 miles on horseback just to see his soul saved. And we won't drive two and a half miles to see somebody saved. Yet there's room. It's been done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said to the servant, go out into the highways and and hedges. Go further. Some people say, who do you think you are going to Derry to have a gospel mission in Ireland? Isn't there enough to do in Oxfordshire? Isn't it a bit presumptuous of you all, you know? No, no, go out further. It's not enough just to care about my own household. It's not enough just to care about my own community and it's not enough just to care about my own city. We ought to care about this country and the whole world. You ought to have such a large vision and heart that you want the whole world to have what you have. And if you don't, there's something wrong. Go out further. The Lord commanded into the highways and hedges and the Bible says compel them to come in. You remember the last phrase says that my house may be full. Do you know God is more interested in his house being full than you and I are? He desires souls to be saved more than you and I do. There's more to be saved. Turn again our captivity, O Lord. Turn again our captive brethren, O Lord. You've set us free. Set them free as well. Psalm 130 verse 7 says, Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him, watch this, is plenteous redemption. I love that phrase. With God there is limited redemption. Plenteous. You ought to preach it like that, believe it like that, and live it like that. Plenteous redemption. You ought to preach redemption, salvation as widely and broadly as you can, because with the Lord there is plenteous redemption. More than enough. More than enough. We read in John chapter 14 and verse number 2, again, another another expression about God's view. John 14, verse number 2, in my Father's house are how many mansions? Many. There's a whole bunch of them. Well, in my, in my father's house are a few mansions. And, you know, we'll see. Maybe you might get one. No, there are many. There's a lot of them. Live that way. Believe that. It ought to spur you on and push you forward. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 8, again, the the, uh, apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says, Unto me who am less than uh, the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Meaning there's so much riches you can never find them all out. So much. So much. Turn again our captivity, O Lord. You see how you how, how much easier it is to pray then. So now you're not praying, Lord, is it maybe if it's your will to save more people. No, it is. 
That's the only reason we're still on this old circle, this globe. That's the only reason we're still here, because there's still more people to be saved. You think God's going to let us spin around here and just, just hang out and suffer just for, for good times? No, no. He, he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. The reason he hasn't come back, the reason he hasn't destroyed this world, the reason justice haven't, hasn't been served is because he wants to pluck more from the fire before it's too late. That's it. There's no other reason. And therefore, if that's the reason that God has, Christ has not come back and judgment has not been given, then don't you think we ought to be involved in that work? In 1 John chapter 2, just near the end of the Bible, 1 John chapter 2, I love this. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole United Kingdom. Not just for ours, but for the whole of Oxford. The whole world. The whole world, meaning you can't give the gospel to the wrong person. You go and you tell it and you pray. Turn again our captivity, O Lord. Uh, turn again our captive brethren, O Lord. You remember when they went into one city, the city of Philippi, and, and they said, look, we're, we're going to camp out right here because the Lord has much people in this city. I don't know who, who's going to be saved. I don't know who's going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But I do know that there are more to be saved and that more are going to believe. So I'm going to preach, preach, preach until the last soul is saved and Jesus returns. Amen. That's the way we should live. Revelation chapter 7. If this doesn't stir you up, if you get a little bit discouraged, Revelation chapter 7 ought to light your fire a little bit. Verse 4 says, Then I heard a number of them which were sealed. They were sealed 140 and 4,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Nephthalim they were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Levi they were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Zabulin they were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Benjamin they were sealed 12,000 well that sounds nice but the next verse and after this I beheld and lo a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and all kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And do you know what happened when that multitude, which could not be numbered, began to praise? This is what John was seeing in this, in this vision, this prophetic vision. Do you know what happened? The Bible says, and the angels stood up. Can you imagine that choir beginning to sing salvation unto our God? Worthy is the Lamb. And when that began to happen, when all the saints of all the ages of every tribe and every kindred and every tongue are gathered together to worship God, then the Bible says the angels couldn't help but stand up. Do that's what it's contagious. It's contagious. And the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne to their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. 
Now that's what we're going to look forward to. So we pray, turn again, our captive brethren. There are more who need to be saved. Now, the second part of the verse says, turn again our captive, our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Many believe that this is what this means. After a time of drought, and the earth is parched and cracked, and there's zero vegetation. No shrubbery, no trees, nothing but desert. By the way, that took place seasonally in this part of the world. But then when the rains came, when the rains came and flooded the land almost overnight, it went from desert to tropical paradise. And here's what God is saying. Here's what he's encouraging the people to pray. Turn us again. Turn our captivity, O Lord. Bring our brethren back like the streams in the south. Like when that those rains come rushing in and all that revival of life comes. When Ezekiel stood over the valley of dead men's bones and God said, Can these dead bones live? Lord, thou knowest. Prophesy. Amen. Prophesy over these dead. You just preach. You say, well, I don't look at him. Oxford's dead. Oxford's dead. Look, people don't care about God. They don't care. All they care about is their own brains, and it's dead. They don't care nothing. They care more about paleontology than they do about the creator of the universe. Oxford's dead. You don't worry about the dead bones. You just prophesy over them. And the Bible said that the Spirit of God moved over those dead bones, those dry, very dry bones, and they lived. Just like when those streams of water come rushing back in into the, into the south. That's what he's praying. He's praying for that kind of an awakening. When's the last time you prayed for that kind of awakening? When's the last time you prayed for that kind of outpouring? Not the outpouring of rain, but the outpouring of God's spirit. When's the last time you prayed for that? An interesting thing is if you're going to pray for that, you're going to have to live like it. You can't pray for revival and then continue living the same way you've been living. Sorry. It ain't going to work. You can't pray for God to bless your church and bless your home and bless your family and continue living the same way you've always lived. Was it Einstein that said that to do the same thing over and over again and to expect different results is the very definition of insanity? You can't continue living the same way you're living and pray that God will do something different and expect something different to happen. And so he gives us instructions. They that sow. Are you even sowing? Oh, I I want revival. I want to see it. I want to see the rains come and sweep through the land. We read about it. We've heard about it. But you can't expect that if you don't sow. Can you imagine? Now, I love this. Uh, the little reading on this afternoon. They that sow in tears. Why are they sowing in tears? Well, you think about it. After a time of drought, the Bible writers love this analogy almost more than any in Scripture. Seed time and harvest. After a time of drought, all that was left was a bit of seed. All That was all they had. And that was perhaps their last few loaves of bread. And so now they had a choice whether they make that into bread or whether they sow it. One or the other. 
They sow in tears because they knew that this was it. This is all they had. They had nothing else. And when that last handful of seed went into the ground, that was it. And that's the way you and I ought to sow. It's all we have. All we have is Christ. All we have is the gospel. All we have is this life-giving message. We have no gimmicks. We have no tricks up our sleeves. We have no fancy praise and worship band. We have no, all we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the soul-saving gospel message of the risen Savior. And can I tell you, if you don't believe that's enough, then you might as well jump ship now. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Jesus said, my favorite one-line parable, John chapter 12, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. If you had one corn of wheat in your hand, and that was your last grain of wheat, you have a choice. You can preserve that, take good care of that, it's the last thing you've got, or you can take it, by faith, put it in the ground, and hope and pray that from that one grain, you get a hundred more, thousands more, maybe millions more. You have a choice. And so the same principle, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Oh, I don't know, but this is all I've got. You know, one of the number one reasons people don't give their life to the Lord, one of the number one reasons people don't serve him is because they think they've only got one life and they'd rather keep it for themselves. I hear people all the time, we oftentimes ask for help, and people say, oh, it's not very convenient. I don't think it was very convenient for the Lord Jesus to leave heaven. Do you? You know, I'd like to help. It's just not really convenient. I've only got one life, you know. I've only got seven days in a week, and I've only got a few hours. I've got to have some time for telly, telly don't I? I've got to have some time for myself. They that sow in tears. It's all I've got, God. All I've got is this life. All I've got is this one breath. All I've got is this one day. You take it, Lord. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. But I promise you, if you never sow, you'll never reap. You say, but... If I do give my life, I, I, may never, I may never see any fruit. But I promise you, if you don't give your life, you definitely will never see any fruit. Definitely. Look at the way you've been living. Is there any fruit? Look here. Is there any fruit? Well, you're not going to get fruit by doing less. By giving less of yourself. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. Now, this is an amazing little verse. Bearing precious seed. Now, do you know uh, that word precious? We, we looked at that a while ago in the New Testament. But I believe that the seed was precious because for a couple of reasons. Number one, there was so little of it. Precious. There was so little of it, and that's why it was so hard to give it. But not only was it precious because it was so little of it, but it was precious as well because of its productivity. Because of what it could do. Would you look here for a moment? 
I know you've only got one life. But if you give that one life, what could one life totally surrendered to God do? D.L. Moody was a young man when he heard a preacher, I believe in this country in the South, and Brighton heard a preacher say, what could God do with one, one person who was totally, completely yielded to him? What could he do? D.L. Moody sat in the congregation. He said, God, by your help, by your grace, I'll be that man. You know, God used D.L. Moody in a marvelous way. But at the end of his life, he said, the world has still yet to see what God could do through one person totally yielded. Would you yield your life to him? Oh, I know the seed that we bear. If we take the New Testament illustration, the seed that we bear is the gospel message. I'm aware of that, but there's a principle here about giving yourself. It is the principle of the gospel. Death to the giver, life to the receiver. Christ died that we might live. And as a child of God, we die to ourselves so that others might live. We swallow our pride. Oh, but I look like an idiot. Swallow your pride. I, I'm sure it's far, far better for you to look like an idiot and for someone, someone's soul to be saved from an eternity in hell than it is for you to say, I'd rather not look like an idiot and be proud because you're too concerned about what you look like and people die without ever hearing. Amen. He that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless, I love that, without a doubt come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Without a doubt. We will. If we go forth, there was a young evangelist out through the Salvation Army many years ago, and he was laboring in a particular city here in England, and he had no fruit at all, no soul saved. And he telegrammed back to William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, he says, nothing's happening, no souls. I don't know what to do. Should I give it up? Should I come home? And William Booth sent a two-word telegram back. Try tears. Try tears. When's the last time you wept over lost souls? When's the last time you wept over a city, over a nation that has so utterly turned its back on God that if it got what it deserved right now, there wouldn't be one breathing soul left? When's the last time you wept over such a, such a dark place, godless society? Spurgeon used to call tears liquid petitions. Heard uh, an old preacher say, my most memorable times of prayers are the times when I'm so full up that I can't even speak. A time that I'm broken, choking, I can't even speak, weeping. Those are special times. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. I heard a story of a, of a minister who was going from door to door, trying to plead with people about their soul. And after rejection, after rejection and rejection, he sat down after the door was slammed in his face, sat down on the steps and began to weep. Later that night in the evangelistic meeting, the last door that he knocked on, the door where the woman was so rude to him, and he sat down and, he's, and he wept. The woman walked through the door of the meeting. As he preached the word, the woman fell under conviction and, and was born again of the Spirit of God. And he 
went to the woman and said, what made you change your mind? She said, I heard your tears. I heard your tears. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. I believe we're living in a generation. It is an entertainment-driven society. And we would rather laugh than weep. We'd rather slap ourselves on the back, joke around, be casual, be flippant, be silly, than we would be broken. But he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Oh, I want to bring sheaves with me, don't you? I don't want to just bring one stalk. I want to bring sheaves. A bundle there and a bundle there, a bundle there, and a field full of bundles. That's what I want. The Lord has done great things for us. We were like them that dream. Are we praying, Lord, turn again the captivity of our brethren? And are we going, weeping? Let's pray and then we'll sing our final hymn. Father, it is to our shame that we are so little burdened about the lost country in which we live. It's to our shame that we care so little and weep so little. Oh, change that in us, Lord, I pray. Stir something inside of us that wouldn't allow us to joke about and mess about and waste time. Oh, Father, change us. Help us to laugh with joy because of what thou hast done, of course. Help us to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory because we've been delivered. But may it burden us that there are others who still have not yet been delivered. May it be a bittersweet thing to us, sweet because we have been delivered and bitter because others haven't. And may we be determined by thy Spirit's help to do something about it. Thrust us into the harvest field, Lord. Help us to be willing to give every ounce of energy we have. Help us to be willing to die for this one cause, for thy glory and the saving of souls. Help us to weep and groan over the lost souls all around us. Help us, Father, to be burdened and bothered that people can turn their back on our Savior. Oh, Father, please. We ask of thee. Turn again the captivity of our brethren. Send us forth, Lord. May it be like the floods, the streams in the south. Oh, please, Lord, would it not please thee to rip open the heavens wider than they've ever been ripped open before, to pour out thy spirit in such measure as the world has never seen, Lord. Oh, Lord, make us ready. Make us willing. Oh, please come. Help us to weep, Lord. Help us to weep over our own sin. Help us to weep over our own lethargy, our own laziness. 
our own unwillingness, Lord, our own pride. Oh, God, may it burden us that we'd be ashamed. Help us to weep over, over our loved ones who are lost and over our neighbors who are lost. Help us, Lord, I pray, to sow in tears and reap in joy. Help us to believe that it is worth it to spend and be spent for thy glory. Help us to believe that we shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing our sheaves with us. Use us, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.